as you know, I'm a visual thinker. I like images and pictures in my head, and I like to draw little things, and I'll doodle a lot when I'm listening often. It helps me process and all. And so when I often, I, when I have a movie clip or a storyline, I kind of reuse those a lot, all right? I confess. But I'm not telling you anything because you've probably already heard me use this particular movie before. There's an old movie that I cannot show you clips of here in church because they're not church kind of clips at all, all right? But the, the, it's from 1978. It's a Burt Reynolds movie. That tells you a lot about the movie right there. Um, and this particular one was with Dom DeLuise. That tells you more about the movie. And then it had Sally Fields in it. That tells you another thing about it a little bit. The movie is called The End. And in the movie, Burt Reynolds wrongly con- is convinced that he is dying. And um, it's kind of a dark comedy. And he's decided that he doesn't want to die a slow death. And so he's trying to research, you know, his other options. At one point, he's finds himself way out in the ocean. He's swum out in the ocean. He finds that he can't quite get back. And he begins to talk to God. He doesn't believe he can swim back. His character, Burt Reynolds' character, is like this ego-driven kind of real estate developer. And he's, um, he's not a nice guy. And, and you kind of see that even in the way he, he kind of works with God. So in this final scene, his character has swum out there. And he's way out there. And he didn't think he'd get back. So he starts talking to God. And he's like going, he just screams out, like, help me, Lord. Help me, Lord. I promise if you help me get back, I'll be a better father. I'll be a better man. I'll be better everything. I just need you to make me a better swimmer right now. He says, I promise to obey all Ten Commandments. I've learned, I promise to learn them first, but I will do them all. He says, I'll give you 50% of my income. And I'm telling you, no one gives that much. And I'm talking gross too, God. I'll be honest in my business. I, I want to see another sunset. I want to see another sunrise. You won't regret this, Lord. I'll see my parents more often, he says. I'm, I'm going to start, and then as he gets almost to the shore, he goes, I am going to start donating 10% right away, God. I know I said 50%, but 10% is where we're going to start. Isn't that the classic way we deal with God? We go to retreat. We go to a camp. We hear a good message. Every Sunday here at Crossing, we hear a good message. <laughs> and... After that, we have high aspirations, and it seems that as time passes, as the circumstances change, our aspirations change. Our, our commitment changes, and we go from, I'll read every day, to I'm going to get one day in this way. It's a great way to start. I'm going to start giving a lot, you know, and that's how we kind of are with God. We want to look at how God is with us today. Open up your Bibles to Genesis 9. You know the story. We're in the story of Noah right now. The boat, the ark, has landed on the top of a large mountain range in Turkey, um, in the area of Mount Ararat. Noah has sent out the dove, and it came back. And Noah sent out the dove. And it came back with a branch, an olive branch in its mouth. So, in other words, there was something out there growing. It had been dry enough. There was something growing, but it wasn't enough to live, you know, for the bird to make a home in. He sends out the dove again, and the dove doesn't come back. It's the sign that the earth is drying up, and life is, is beginning to take place out there. So, Noah and his family leave the boat, and God has given them instructions in verse 16 of chapter 9. And there he, he says, I'm going to go back to chapter 8 and verse 15. He says, go out of the ark, verse 16. I'm sorry, verse 16, chapter 8. 
bring out every living thing of all flesh that is with you, the birds and the animals and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, that they may breed abundantly on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. And he says there, he continues forward giving uh, Noah more instruction, leading into verse 9 there where he says that now things are changing. You and your family go out and you be fruitful, multiply and fill the earth. And he says that your dynamic with the animals is going to change. They're going to be afraid of you now. He says that you, you should not, you can, and you're going to eat animals now. You haven't done that before, but you're going to eat animals now, but not the blood. And, and he institutes human government or human statutes now about, and in particular, that of capital punishment. One takes a life and murder, that life is required. What he does here in verse, chapter 9, verse 8, he says this word in here. And, and God spoke to Noah and to his sons and said to him, saying, Now behold, I myself do establish my covenant with you. That's our word today, covenant. I establish my covenant with you. And with your descendants after you, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the cattle, every beast of the earth with you, and all that comes out of the ark, even every beast of the earth. It's interesting that among all the covenants that we're going to, you'll read in your Bible, this one is very specific, that is not just to mankind, but is to creation as a whole. You note that? He says, I'm making this with every living creature. And I establish my covenant with you, and all the flesh shall never again be cut off by the water of the flood, neither shall there ever be a flood to destroy the earth. There's a, there's a covenant to the earth as well. And God said, this is the sign of my covenant, which I am making between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all successive generations. I set my bow in the cloud. And it shall be a sign of a covenant between me and the earth. And it shall come about when I bring a cloud over the earth that the bow shall be seen in the cloud. And I will remember my covenant, which is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And never again shall the water become a flood to destroy all flesh. And when the bow is in the cloud, then I will look upon it to remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. And God said to Noah, This is the sign of the covenant which I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for its everlasting nature. We thank you that it is, it was, and it will be. And that it has the power to change lives. It has the power to give wisdom. And today we seek that wisdom as we look into your word. As we look to see more about you, more about us, and more about how you love us. Reveal yourself to us in this place today. Open our eyes that we, that we may see wonderful things in your law. In your name we pray, amen. Covenants are pretty foreign to us anymore. They are something that we read about, and they're something that we talk about. We mention them at marriages, weddings. But to fully understand our Bibles, we need to understand covenants. So for instance, let me just, let me just explain something to you. For instance, if I show you this map which is like, you know, Stormageddon this week. <clears throat> this, is, this is what they said last night. We'll wait and see what they say tomorrow night, you know. And if I were to show you this map and just show it to you just like that, you would look at it and say, um, there's numbers, and there's colors, there's lines. But if I didn't show you like the, the legend that goes with it and explain the colors and the legends and the lines and everything, you wouldn't know what was really meaning there. You wouldn't know if the yellow meant good or bad. You wouldn't know if um, the blue there for us is a good blue or a bad blue. 
unless someone told you. And that's the way covenants are in our Bible. They are there. Covenants are like the story that is in between the lines of what we're reading. They're always present in our Bible. They're always present in our reading. And unless we know to look for them, and unless we understand what we're looking at, we won't understand the whole story. We won't be able to read between the lines and catch all of that God has for us in this story. As a matter of fact, covenants are even influenced history even to this very day in the Middle East. I cannot wait to talk about that in Genesis 12, 15, and 18. We'll have a lot of fun with that. But here in 618, God has announced that the flood and the ark, and he says, I will establish my covenant with you. And then and he said, and first time in 618, he starts, he just says in the very beginning, I'm going I'm to have a covenant with you. But then in chapter 9, he unfolds that. And seven times in chapter 9, he, he talks about establishing my covenant. <clears throat> Let's see. The word that he uses is berith. It has, there's a, a similar Assyrian word that has a similar meaning, the root of it are, are, of kind, that means to fetter or to bind. And so a covenant is that which binds together the parties, the two parties, the two people, two nations, whatever it may be. A covenant is what binds them together. In the Bible, there's two types of covenants between men and the covenant between man and God. And as far as in the ancient culture and in these cultures and still in some other cultures, a covenant still exists today. Covenants are very solemn, binding agreement. In ancient Semitic cultures, they were considered like blood brotherhoods. They were, they were unbreakable. And matter of fact, they, they, they had the sense, the earliest records they have about covenants had this blood brotherhood, and the reason they call it blood brotherhood was because part of the sealing of the covenant was the drinking of one another's blood. But that drinking each other's blood kind of subsided into other types of ceremonial things, such as perhaps mixing something with wine in the blood, sprinkling the blood on the agreeing parties, eating a sacrificial meal together. And the four basic parts of this agreement between men was the statement was the statement of terms. In other words, this is what you're doing, this is what I'm doing. There was an oath that we agreed by. And you'll see that often in Scripture where you'll see, especially in the Old Testament narratives, where they make oaths about, I will do this, you know. <clears throat> there are curses if one breaks the covenant. So, and if you do this, you know, this is what's going to happen. And then there's formal ratification. Perhaps a shared meal. Perhaps a handshake. The stacking of stones. You've seen that in all the Old Testament texts, right? Where they would stack up stones to, um, to uh, um, remember or to honor an agreement. Again, the blood thing. Perhaps some kind of event, you know, inviting others. All those things are, are significant about a covenant between men. You know, and the one that we we think about often in, in the most promising light is that one between David and Jonathan where they made a covenant with one another. Um, but there's also covenants between nations. The Philistines and the Israelites made covenants <coughs> and between tribes. But these covenants were always made between quote-unquote equal parties, right? They were made between equal parties. 
And then um, another expression of covenant in the Bible is that of marriage. We do read about that also. That marriage is a covenant that is made upon the, the bonding of one another's word and is, un, is irrevocable, cannot be broken. And the motive for covenants among men typically is protection, especially among nations. All right, I won't cross this line if you don't cross that line, and we're, gonna, and be, and we're protecting ourselves. Fear. I'm protecting myself because if you do this, this is going to happen to you. And if I do this, it's going to happen to me. And distrust. Among men, those are the things that happen. And that is even true contractually these days. A a contract is vastly different than a covenant, but that's the same thing true. I'm going to make a contract with you because I want to make sure you're going to do what you're going to say you do. And I want there to be a penalty if you don't follow through with your part of the deal. So contracts are built the same way. There's, there's a, a technical phrase that is used with that, and it's called karathbrith. It means to cut. And, and especially, you see this especially in the Genesis 15 covenant that God makes with Abraham, where the animals are cut in half, and God walks between them. And, and you have to understand that, that this technical phrase has everything to do with cut, because it has everything to do with bloodletting at some level. It's going to cost something, even a little bit, to make this covenant between these two men. And that same concept carries forward into later covenants that we'll be reading about. And in the ancient world, as I've always already said, they are, ir- they are just irrevocable agreements. You just cannot imagine breaking these. They are solemn. But when you think about covenants between God and man, those covenants are not the same because it's not a covenant between two equals at all. God always takes the first step in the covenants he makes with man. He is the initiator. Some of them have expectations, responsibilities that man must keep for God to Bless or to keep a covenant, that would be conditional. You must do this, and this will happen. And if you don't do this, that happens. Those are conditional covenants that God has made with man. There are unconditional covenants also, technically, where God made the covenant really with himself. Mankind benefits from the promise that God made um, with his own nature. Because, you see, when God makes a, a covenant, he says, this is what I'm going to do. And so this weekend it rained, I bet you somewhere there was a rainbow because that was God's covenant. And he said he would do it and he did it. God keeps those covenants. Man never keeps his covenants. There's a few observations that we can make about covenants between God and man. Nine of them, and I came across in some of my studies. Nine, nine observations we can make about these. And then we're going to go through these here, but we're going to go through these specifically about the covenant God made with Noah. So here they are. There's always an initiator. Who is the initiator in these covenants? Don't try and draw these down really fast. I'll put them up in a minute. You have more time. Who are the parties involved in it? Is it between one man and God? Is it between a nation and God, a tribe and God? Who is it between? 
What is the reason for the covenant? Why is there covenant being made? Is there a sacrifice made? What type of sacrifice is it? Is it does it affect the offspring, or is it just with the one man? Is there an oath or a promise that is made? Are there a, is there a sign or a witness? You notice that in covenants between men, sometimes the, the, the more important the covenant is, the more witnesses there are, because the, the degree of distrust is so high. They want plenty to be there to say, I saw that happen. This is what they agreed to. The time frame of the covenant. Does it have a warranty on it, so to speak? Does it have an in, an in line to it? Is it only for a while or is it forever? Is there a meal, an altar, or a name change? So, <coughs> in our study here... We're going to look and answer some of these questions about the covenant God made with Noah. So, for instance, let me put all of them up there, and you can see, you can see in there, there's, all, there's the whole list. I told you I'd do it. There's the whole list. So, in this particular covenant, who's the initiator? Well, we read in, in 9.9 that it is God who's the initiator. He said, I will make, I myself will make a covenant. And in this case, he is the initiator. It's an unconditional covenant. God declares his purpose will be fulfilled regardless of man's response. Look at the, you know, when you look back at the text, nowhere in the text does it say that man has to do anything. God says, I'm going to do this. Man doesn't have to do anything at all. He doesn't have to obey or disobey. He doesn't have to be righteous or unrighteous. He doesn't have to ask me to perform. He doesn't have to ask me to respond. I'm going to do this regardless of man. But still, think about this. The covenant is still with man. I'm making a covenant with you, he says. <clears throat> and so it is an unconditional covenant. Now then, who are the parties involved? It's God and Noah in this case. And, and you think about this, God's name. Remember, Noah's name said meant rest, relief, and quiet. And so here we are where God says, I am making a covenant with you, Noah, God, and God is obligating himself to preserve man in the midst of judgment. That's exactly what he did with Noah. Here he is, he's judging the entire creation, all of creation, and he chooses this man who walked with him and this man's offspring. And he says, bring with you these animals. What's the covenant for? The context is divine judgment we just speak about. The wickedness of man, every, he says, every thought, every intent of their heart is corruption, is violence. And man has spiraled out of control from the garden to now. And so the context, the reason for it, is that I have just exercised judgment. And I'll never do it this way again. I'll never do this again. I'm making a covenant with you so you know I'll keep my word. So he's preserving life. We're going to talk about that more in a minute, what the reason for the covenant. Is there a sacrifice? Yes, there is a sacrifice in the sense that Noah got off the boat and he, he made sacrifice of every clean animal, seven of them. And his offspring obviously were affected. The sons and the wives of the daughters, the descendants, every living creature, and even the earth in verse 13 of chapter 9. <clears throat> so is there a promise or oath? Yes, God's promise that he would never ever destroy the earth, never ever destroy all flesh with the flood. You see, later on, he chooses to take away part of creation, but he reinstitutes all of it in Revelation. And then is there a sign? Yes, there's the rainbow. That is the sign of God's covenant. 
And then the length of the covenant is this. This is really good. Pick up where he says in 916, he says, And the bow would be in the cloud when I look upon it to remember the everlasting covenant between God and man. Everlasting. Remember that with God, he thinks big picture. We think our 60 or 70 years. And here's God saying, I'm making this covenant everlasting. It will never, ever end. And I'm making it to you and to every living thing and to all creation. This speaks to the very character of God. Who did he make the, who's the other party in the, I mean, who's the other one responsible in this? No one but God. God is the one who's going to make this happen. And so when he says everlasting, based on his character, he cannot lie. Based on his character, he will not do anything other. And so this, this, the length of the covenant being everlasting is very speaking to the exact nature of who he is. And then finally, is there a meal, an altar, or a name change? Yes, there is. In 820, he made an altar. He made the sacrifices there when they came off the boat. So why is a covenant important? There's a lot of things that you can say about that, but Ray Stedman, a pastor in California who's since passed away, has said it like this, and I really liked it. He said, it has been pointed out that, that in Genesis 2, you know, the name of God appears in a different form than it does in Genesis 1. You hear him? He's saying in Genesis 1, there was a name that God used for himself when he talked about himself, and there was a different name when he was in Genesis 2. We have, for the first time, the great name of God appears in so much of the rest of the Bible, Jehovah, or in Hebrew, Yahweh. Jehovah Elohim. Translated, our version is Lord God. And there's a special change for that reason. In chapter 1, we're dealing with the Creator, But when man came under the scene, God appears to have a different character. He's dealing with man. A different aspect of him comes out. He now appears under the title title Jehovah, which just essentially means the covenant-making God, the God who keeps a promise. He referred to himself one way in Genesis 1. I am the creator. And then as he moves into Genesis 2, and he's dealing with man, all of a sudden he changes his name, and he says, I am also the promise keeper. What was the promise in Genesis 3? This is where we answer the, the, the aspect of the oath of the promise. The promise in Genesis 3, it's a big promise. The promise in Genesis 3 says that the seed of the woman, seed, one seed, would one day crush the serpent's head. In other words, a Messiah, a deliverer, would come and rescue the people from the effects of their sin. That's a big deal. That's an eternal deal. And Noah is one tiny little cog. He's one stretch of a very long road from promise, the promise of Genesis 3, to the fulfillment of the Messiah. Noah is one tiny part of that. And along that very long road, through those thousands of years, man and God would enter into covenants, different ones, conditional ones, that said that God would bless his people if they obeyed, but they never did. And what has God to do with the people who continually break covenants? He forms a new covenant. And it's spoken of by the prophets. And it was called the new covenant and was fulfilled by Jesus. 
where every conditional covenant was broken by the people. In Jesus, all those covenants that were broken, he fulfills. So the Davidic covenant, for instance, it says that one of David's descendants will someday be an eternal king. And Jesus fulfilled that. In Abraham's covenant, it says, from your seed, from your descendants, you will bless every nation, every tongue, tribe, and people will be blessed through you, Abraham. That's Genesis 12, 18, and 15. And Jesus is the fulfillment of that blessing. Jesus blesses every tongue, tribe, nation, and people group. And so in Christ, every single one of the covenants are fulfilled. But this new covenant that, is, that the prophets speak of is an unconditional one. God will keep it no matter what man does. And that covenant really centers around the forgiveness of sins. <clears throat> so here we are. We have our first covenant. And it says this is what's going to happen. I'm going to never, ever again destroy the world by water. And every time it rains, I'm going to put this rainbow up there so I'll remember. Now, like God really needs someone to remind him, right? But he does this anyway. And that rainbow is there to remind us as well that God made a covenant and he's still keeping it to this day because we're all walking on dry land. Later on, he makes a covenant with Abraham. And in that covenant, it too is unconditional. I am going to bless you. And I'm going to bless you in such a way that your descendants will bless the entire world. Later on, he makes a covenant with Moses about the land. You go into the land, and I will bless you if you obey. And if you don't obey, I will curse you. And they disobey. And he follows through on his end of the bargain. They're displaced from the land. They're scattered around the world. Interestingly enough, he also made a promise in all of that that says, someday I'll bring you back. And in 1948, he began that process of bringing them back to their place. And then later on, he says, in Jeremiah, he begins to talk about a new covenant, a different covenant, where I will replace their their hearts of stone and I will give them a heart of flesh, where I will make them. And then he says, and this covenant is all about forgiveness. Why? Why do they need forgiveness? Because they've broken all the other covenants. They're left hopeless. If they're only depending on this other covenant that involved them, they are left hopeless because they broke that covenant. And so what's left? He makes a new covenant and says, this covenant is about forgiveness. And this covenant will involve the forgiver, Jesus, who fulfills all the other covenants. Covenants are important because I, in particular, and you know how we are, we always think about ourselves, but I think that <laughs> I, I think I need a God that I can't explain. I think I need a God that is immeasurably powerful, that has the ability to do things that I can't even think about. And I need a God who keeps promises. That's me. I don't know about you. But I think that's what we all want. There is very... There, having a promise broken to us is incredibly painful especially if it's a big promise how many times have you read especially parents how many times have we read the, the stories in the books about you know when i was a kid my dad said he was taking me fishing that day and he ended up going to work and i still remember that to that day he broke a promise and to us sometimes it's the littlest things that mark people 
Well, when God said he was sending a Messiah, that was a big thing. I need to know that he's sending someone who's going to provide forgiveness for my sin, who's going to help me deal with my sin, my shame, my guilt. Covenants are important because we need a God who keeps promises. This morning, there are some of us here today that are exhausted from trying to get rid of their guilt and the shame of their sin. There are some of us here who have spent maybe a lifetime trying to figure out what it means to be good. What it means to to know God. What does it mean for me to know where I'm going to go? Last week, I'm still in California, and I get a text on Sunday night, and it said, can you go by this particular um, nursing home right here in Newtown? You know, my aunt is there. She's never trusted Christ. Can you go by and talk to her? So on the way from home from the airport, I went by and talked to her. That woman needs to know that there is a God who's made provision for her in these last days of her life. There are people in this room, I believe, who are still trying to figure that out and need to know that a promise-keeping God has made a promise that he'll forgive you of your sins, that he will cleanse you of your shame and your guilt of your sins and give you new life. Actually, he'll give you life for the very first time. There's some people in the room that need to know that. There are some other people in this room that are worn out by the relentless onslaught of life. And even though you know Christ, and even though you follow him, and you follow, and many of us follow him diligently, and faithfully, but you still need to be reminded that this will pass. You still need to be reminded that Romans 8 says so, that God will take all the heartache, all the pain, all the confusion, and he'll use it for his glory and for your good. Someone here today needs to be reminded of that promise. Someone here today needs to be reminded God is a promise keeper that never breaks promises, that never takes back on his word, that when he says, I will give you perfect peace, that you cannot understand that he will give it. When God says that, I will make good rise up from the ashes of pain, that he will mean it. There are people in this room who need to know that today. That's why having a God who keeps his promises and having a God who makes a promise to you will keep it to you. This covenant, this new covenant, these promises he makes aren't to a nation, They're not to a church, they're to you today in the exact situation that you are in. Let's pray.